This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mayor Culpa Podcast. I have said since the beginning of this show that Trump is a dangerous cult leader whose only goal was amassing of power and the acquiescence and total fealty of those who serve him. At first, it was the servitude of those who directly surrounded Trump. Soon, it became the entire Republican Party who would do just about fucking anything to stay in the deal leader's good graces. And Trump could do anything, probably even shoot someone in the face, and these fucking GOP sycophants would look the other way. It is really troubling to see uh, the Republican Party turn themselves into a cult and, you know, basically pledge allegiance not to the United States of America, but to Donald Trump. Whether it was praising white supremacists, siding with Vladimir Putin, or suggesting bleach as a coronavirus cure, there was nothing Trump could do to make his Republican brethren walk away. We have a Republican Party that is now an autocratic cult around Donald Trump. It is not interested in governing. It's not interested in even you know, maintaining the, the solvency and the creditworthiness of the country. Then came January 6th, and for a brief moment, it seemed that that was no longer true. Today, all I can say is, count me out, said Lindsey Graham, standing in a Senate chamber that just hours earlier had been overrun by a pro-Trump mob determined to overturn the 2020 presidential election. Enough is enough. A week later, he was joined by Kevin McCarthy, the Republican minority leader in the House of Representatives who called on Trump to accept his share of responsibility for the deadly violence at the Capitol. Other allies turned against the president. If there was ever a moment that the party could snap out of its five-year fever dream, this was it. Yet it did not. In the years since the insurrection that reverberated around the world, Trump's stranglehold on Republicans has seemingly become stronger, not weaker. Graham was soon back on the golf course with him. McCarthy was soon kissing the ring at his Mar-a-Lago estate in Florida. Many leaders of the party have set about changing the narrative of the insurrection to portray it as a heroic last stand, a new lost cause. There was such love at that rally, and they were peaceful people. These were great people. The crowd was unbelievable. And I mentioned the word love, the love, the love in the air. I've never seen anything like it. You have people with no guns that walked down. And frankly, the doors were open, but there was also a love fest between the police, the Capitol Police, and the people that walked down to the Capitol. People who walked with no guns, with no nothing, and they're yep. tremendous, in many cases, tremendous people. But even on the night of January 6th, as members of the House and Senate stepped over blood and broken glass to get the job, some 147 Republicans still voted to overturn the election results. It was the first clue that Trump had burrowed too far down into the party's foundation to be expunged and that anyone who tried would themselves be purged. Myself and some 74 of my Republican colleagues and I objected the electoral votes from the state of Georgia on the grounds that the election conducted on November 3rd was faulty and fraudulent. I and 55 other members of the United States House of Representatives 
Object to the electoral votes of the state of Nevada. I object to the electoral votes of the state of Wisconsin. I object to the electoral votes of my beloved Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. I, along with 70 of my Republican colleagues, object to the counting of the electoral votes for the state of Michigan. I rise up for myself and 60 of my colleagues to object to the uh, counting of the electoral ballots from Arizona. Uh, is the objection in writing and signed by a senator? Yes, it is. The second clue came after Trump had been impeached for the second time by the House, a vote in which just 10 Republicans joined Democrats. A majority of senators voted to convict the former president, but fell 10 votes short of the two-thirds majority required by the Constitution. Trump was thus acquitted. Jamie Raskin, a Democratic congressman who was the lead impeachment manager, said, The evidence was so overwhelming, our legal case was so airtight, and Trump's culpability was so plain to see, I thought that perhaps the Republican Party would use this as an opportunity to perform an exorcism on their own body. But Trump just controls way too much money and too much power in the Republican Party, and it was really only a matter of a week or two before he reasserted his authoritarian cult-like control over the whole GOP apparatus. This cannot be our future. This cannot be the future of America. We cannot have presidents inciting and mobilizing mob violence against our government and our institutions because they refuse to accept the will of the people under the Constitution of the United States. Much less can we create a new January exception in our precious, beloved Constitution that prior generations have died for and fought for so that corrupt presidents have several weeks to get away with whatever it is they want to do. History does not support a January exception in any way. So why would we invent one for the future? The third clue, demonstrating Raskin's point, came in May when Senate Republicans voted down an independent commission to investigate the riot based on the model of a commission that examined the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks. Even the minority leader, Mitch McConnell, who had condemned Trump for inciting the violence and remains an arch foe, dismissed the proposed commission as a purely political exercise. I think at the heart of this recommendation by the Democrats is that they would like to continue to debate things that occurred in the past. They'd like to continue to litigate the former president into the future. We think the American people going forward and in the fall of 22, ought to focus on what this administration is doing to the country and what the clear choice is that we have made to oppose most of these initiatives. So I think this is a purely political exercise that adds nothing. Democrats instead created a House Select Committee to examine the events of that day and understand what role Trump played. It has interviewed hundreds of people and is threatening jail time for those who refuse to comply. But it is only two Republican members, that's Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, and their fates say much about the direction of the party. I mean, imagine, Jake, if President Eisenhower 
had summoned a mob to Washington and told them to march on the Supreme Court when they were hearing arguments in Brown v. Board of Education. And then imagine if he sat and watched them invade the Supreme Court and didn't do anything to stop it. We couldn't imagine that, that you know, an honorable man like Dwight Eisenhower would do something like that, yet that's almost exactly what Donald Trump did. And I think it's important for the American people to understand how serious that is and, and for us to get to the bottom of it. Cheney, vice chair of the committee and daughter of the former vice president, Dick Cheney, has faced the wrath of the Republican Party of Wyoming, which voted to no longer recognize her as a Republican. She will be challenged for her seat in a primary election by a pro-Trump candidate. Kinzinger has been subject to death threats and will not seek re-election. How does it feel to be a pariah within your own party? I said the <laughs> same of Liz Cheney. You know, I don't like the feeling. You know, I've grown up, I was a Republican since I was six years old. I admire the Republican past, what we stood for, American leadership and strength, all that kind of stuff. Um, so that part hurts, right? But I would never, ch I would not change a thing that I've done particularly in the last year because I know I've got a, a son being born imminently. It's why I'm in Illinois. I know that he'll be proud of me someday and I know he'll be able to look and say that I stood up in, in a tough time. And if it's just me and Liz doing it, it's just me and Liz, that's fine. I wish there was more people though. Today, the loudest voices in the Republican party belong to the extremists. For them, Trump's big lie that the election was stolen from him due to voter fraud, rendering Biden illegitimate president, goes hand in hand with the lie that the insurrection was a morally justified crusade, a righteous endeavor to save democracy and not destroy it. I think there's problems with this election. Why is it that it's always Democrat-run cities in swing states that have all kinds of problems allowing votes to be counted after the election? Just, you know, Shazam, we found votes. They wanted to keep looking for and finding and counting ballots. We've had missing memory cards. We should continue to investigate this election. We got all these irregularities. With all the irregularities in all these key swing states, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Georgia. Michigan, Pennsylvania, Arizona, five states. The state of Pennsylvania, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Look at Pennsylvania. There are 159 counties in Georgia. Arizona. And Arizona. Five key states that were, were critical in this election changed their election law in an unconstitutional fashion. There was unconstitutional change in the election rules, so they couldn't do it the constitutional fashion. Unilaterally changing the election law in an unconstitutional fashion, more than 50 million people think there are major problems with this election. 50 some million people think the election was rigged. So many Americans, 73 million, 74 million Americans instinctively know. Instinctively know. Instinctively know something's not right here. Something wasn't right with this election. That's why I'm standing up and objecting. Trump himself perpetuates this through a regular barrage of interviews, rallies, and emailed statements since he was barred from Twitter. Notably, he has sought to lionize Ashley Babbitt, who was shot dead during the riot, as a martyr. We must all demand justice for Ashley and her family. So on this solemn occasion, as we celebrate her life, we renew our call for a fair and nonpartisan investigation into the death of Ashley Babbitt. I offer my unwavering support to Ashley's family and call on the Department of Justice to reopen its investigation into her death on January 6th. 
Like all Americans, you deserve a fair process, you deserve answers, and you deserve justice. Marjorie Taylor Greene, a Republican congresswoman, has cast rioters currently held in detention in a similar light. In November, she visited a Washington jail so-called Patriot Wing and complained that the inmates were enduring inhumane conditions because of their political beliefs. We should all, all disagree with how these people are being treated. This is completely unacceptable. And as Americans, this should go beyond political boundaries. And we should all come together and declare that this is wrong and call for it to stop. We never want to have those in power to be able to weld their power against people they politically disagree with, especially in a time where we saw political riots all over the country and the people that committed those riots not only most of them have been let off of their charges, but many of them were never mistreated like this. Other pro-Trump Republicans in the House echo these messages. One, fucking referred to the Capitol attack as a normal tourist visit, or do little to contradict them. Some Republican senators are evidently more uncomfortable with the web of deceit and urge the party to look forward to the next election. But again, only a small minority are willing to take Trump on directly. There was no insurrection, and to call it an insurrection, in my opinion, is a bold-faced lie. Watching the TV footage of those who entered the Capitol and walked through Statuary Hall showed people in an orderly fashion staying between the stanchions and ropes taking videos and pictures. You know, if you didn't know the TV footage was a video from January the 6th, you would actually think it was a normal tourist visit. All are aware of the power of right-wing media over state Republican parties and the Make America Great Again base. Fox News host Tucker Carlson produced a three-part documentary entitled Patriot Purge for the Fox Nation streaming platform that pushed the bogus claim that the insurrection was a false flag operation designed to hurt Trump's supporters. So FBI operatives were organizing the attack on the Capitol on January 6th, according to government documents. And those two are not alone. In all, Revolver News reported there are, quote, upwards of 20 unindicted co-conspirators in the Oath Keeper indictments, all playing various roles in the conspiracy, who have not been charged for virtually the exact same activities, and in some cases, much, much more severe activities as those named alongside them in the indictments. Huh? So it turns out that this white supremacist insurrection was, again, by the government's own admission in these documents, organized at least in part by government agents. Are you shocked? We're shocked, we shouldn't be shocked. Because in March, the FBI director admitted that the Bureau was infiltrating as many dissident groups that opposed the regime. Steve Bannon, a former advisor to Trump, uses his War Room podcast to promote the big lie that Trump won re-election in a landslide and features guests such as Mike Lindell, the fucking pillow businessman who peddles wild conspiracy theory bullshit. Bannon encourages listeners to support the legal defense of the January 6th political prisoners. We already have all the pieces of the puzzle. And you talk about evidence. We had enough evidence to put everybody in prison for life, 300 and some million people. 
Uh, we, we had that all the way back to November, December. But what we have are these other things that had to happen, which was all evil revealing itself. I mean, evil's popping up like pocket gophers. I mean, they would pop their heads up, it's whack-a-mole, right? I mean, it, it's everywhere, and that all had to be revealed. This has helped fuel a climate in which fealty to Trump and his debunked narrative is a litmus test for Republican candidates for Congress. Almost a third of Republicans believe that violence may be necessary to save the United States, according to a recent poll by the Public Religion Research Institute. And he has made this a litmus test issue for Republicans, and that's just the reality that they face. In a lot of these campaigns, congressional campaigns, House campaigns, Senate campaigns, you are going to have Republican challengers saying that the 2020 election was a fraud, that election integrity, uh, in other words, you know, cracking down on people's ability to vote in under the guise of, you know, having a more accurate count uh, than we had in 2020, which, as you said, again, was the accurate count, um, is the, the, the biggest issue. And it's something we all have to push for. And then so you, that is going to be an agenda setting thing in these campaigns. And the Republican leaders know that as well. So, yes, while they may not want to talk about it and it may, you know, cause them to tear their hair, hair out when they see a tweet like that. The reality for them is this is a core part of the Republican message. Yeah. Trump's resilient ability to bend the party to his will and to his disinformation about election integrity have fueled the drive to make it harder to vote, likely to have a disproportionate impact on Democrats. Between January and October, 19 states have enacted 33 laws to restrict voting access, according to the Brennan Center for Justice. Doesn't matter what party you're in, it doesn't matter your party affiliation. What matters is our collective effort to agree and then to achieve the goal of ensuring that we promote integrity in the election process and that achieves our goal of instilling trust and confidence in elections. In addition, Trump loyalists are running as candidates for secretaries of state and other positions that would give them power over the running of future elections. With Republicans in a strong position to regain control of the House and Senate this year, the party is readying for a repeat of January 6th with a different outcome. One year on, many analysts argue that America is now split between a Democratic Party and an anti-Democratic Party, the latter being barely recognizable as the one-time home of Abraham Lincoln and Ronald Reagan. Instead, Trump remains its most powerful and popular figure and could run for the White House again in 2024, though I often state I don't think so. And now for the main event. Let's face it, the GOP has become a full-on fucking cult. Its leaders are enthralled to Donald Trump, a defeated former president who refuses to acknowledge defeat. Its ideology is MAGA and is taken as gospel as if Trump himself were the Lord and Savior. In this era of autocracy, Trump came seemingly out of nowhere to brainwash half this nation into believing his bilious lies. But my next guest on Mea Culpa, Dr. Stephen Hassan, has Trump's number, pegging the orange freak as a malignant narcissist. He spent the past 45 years rescuing people from the clutches of some of this nation's most notorious cults, and has of late found himself rescuing those afflicted with Trumpism and its various offshoots from QAnon to the more obscure authoritarian cults. 
A mental health counselor, Hassan flies around the country to hold interventions with cult victims, enabling them to take back their minds and their lives. In 2019, Hassan published The Cult of Trump, a book that laid out what he sees the former president's cult leader tendencies and offered advice for the families of Trump extremists. Hassan joins me today as Trump continues to leverage his stranglehold over the GOP for domination while pressuring those who will not bow to his presence to leave the party. This interview is a long time coming and will answer many of my most burning questions of how is it fucking possible for someone to lose their mind to Donald Trump as I did. So let's go now to that conversation. So Dr. Hassan, the most common question I get from people is how does it happen? How do perfectly reasonable people all of a sudden lose all sense of reason and belief in science? Right? How did they reject basic facts like who won the election? So the answer is we're human beings and we like to think we're invulnerable to being unduly influenced. And the more ego you have and the more investment you have, like I have a PhD and two masters, the more investment in your ego you have, the more you think you can be above somebody tricking you and lying to you and incrementally manipulating you. But honestly, it happened to me and I was recruited into the Mooney's cult and turned my back on my Judaism, my family, my poetry. I even threw out my own creative writing. So what I, what I want to say to you as the foremost ex-member of the cult of Trump, the number one whistleblower in my mind, and I wrote about you in, in my book, The Cult of Trump. I, I just want to say you're courageous. You've done the right thing to just like I did when I got out of the cult. And I said, I didn't want to do this. I didn't realize the harm I was doing by getting involved with this group. And it, it set me on my life path to learn about brainwashing and mind control and hypnosis and all the social psychological techniques that happen. Well, let me ask you, is it courage or do you think it's just plain stupidity? Right? I never, I never turned around and I never, you know, walk into a room believing that I'm the smartest guy at the table. Trump believes that he is. He believes that he could charm your pants off, male or female for that matter. But I'm not so sure whether my my actions in order to make amends with, and I say it all the time, make amends with my wife, my daughter, my son, and my country. I don't know whether it was it's done out of courage or sheer stupidity. You know, while I was in Otisville, a lot of people used to make fun, you know, make fun of me. They were also somehow in the cult of Trump, and yet they've never met him. Right. They basically watched him on television, almost like one of these televangelists, where you just become completely engrossed in that individual. Why? I don't know. But they used to make fun and say, if you would only shut your fucking mouth, as soon as you get out, you'll be the first guy to get a pardon. And I probably would have. But I don't want that pardon. I didn't want that pardon before. I don't want that pardon from Trump. Now, I'll take it from Biden. Right. Um, you know, even though there's a whole thing about you have to wait five years, that's assuming the president decides, you know, to do that. Trump, of course, didn't. But my point is, is it courage or is it stupidity? I definitely 
I'm on the courage side of that question versus stupidity. I think that you've been unduly harsh on yourself, but I'd say it's typical because I thought the same thing because my family did try to tell me it was a cult and did tell me that Moon was a false messiah. They tried their best to give me facts, but they didn't understand how to interact with me to get me to think for myself. And what they did was kind of interpreted, not kind of, but interpreted in my cult mind as persecution and proof that I was doing God's will on earth. I want to state this categorically to you, Michael. You know, I really think you need to just cut yourself a break, in my opinion, and say, at the time I got involved, I was doing the best I could with the information, the experiences that I had at the time. But nobody explained brainwashing and mind control or cults to you. No one, ex I don't think, I mean, I should ask you, did anyone explain that before you ever met Trump? So let me, let me kind of give you a quick history uh, of my life. I went from nursery school to fifth grade, actually finished fourth grade in a yeshiva. There was no brainwashing. There was no cultism going on there. It was modern Orthodox yeshiva out in Long Island in Lawrence, the five towns. Then after that, I went to PS number one school because I needed to get away from that whole, that whole ultra religious, you know, scenario. My father being a doctor used to work on Saturdays. He used to go to the hospital where he would operate or go to make rounds. And so, you know, a lot of people didn't care for that because, you know, of you're course. not supposed to drive on Shabbos. Right. All right. So after that, then I ended up going uh, to private school where, you know, I went straight through 12th grade. There was also at this private school, no brainwashing. College, law school, no brainwashing at all. When I went to work for Trump in 2007, which was at his request, I went in there in order really to get a bill paid. And instead, I ended up getting a job. Probably the stupidest move that I ever made. But remember something at that time, too. Trump wasn't the fucking animal pig that he is today, right? He's become the worst version of himself imaginable. Yep. Then he was the president and CEO of the Trump Organization, a myopic part of the real estate industry in New York. And that's an industry I've been involved with for many years before Trump, years after, you know, and hopefully years after, you know, Trump as well. But he was also the president of, um, you know, he had the Miss Universe Organization to which he made me a board member, only three of us. It was Trump, Alan Weisselberg, and myself. Yep. He made me co-president of Trump uh, Productions, which dealt with The Apprentice, which was a hit show, number one at the time. He had, of course, a book that I read not once but twice. I talk all about this in my book. And I, I've, I've heard your interview and I've read your book and such, but you're describing what I was saying before. You didn't know what you didn't know. Like you didn't have a crystal ball of what your life was going to turn into if you said yes to that initial invitation. And there's a thing I want to just comment on that's very important, and that is the, the power of celebrity, the power that 
that it creates a state of awe in a lot of people to be around someone who is a you know celebrity type has a hit show or is wealthy or whatever and it 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 subverts your critical analytic part of your brain it goes into the emotional side of oh he's famous and if i'm near him it rubs off a bit and maybe i can get you know some attention too but there's nothing wrong with that it's just that it becomes an incremental indoctrination into and this is how i started my research for the cult of trump i knew he was a malignant narcissist like i knew the, all the criteria and um that's the stereotypical profile of all cult leaders so you were you were sucked into a cult of personality at first and you know corporate cult maybe cuz he had a business but you didn't know what you didn't know but i want to come back to i think you were brave and courageous and you showed integrity cuz people who walk away and they don't want to talk about it they don't want to own up to it um they're walking around with a lot of emotional baggage, a lot of stuff that's suppressed. And I think you did the right thing by by being the stand-up guy and saying, listen, I love my country, and this is a bad actor who's a pathological liar, and I need, you know, and you were talking about your father being a Holocaust survivor. It's like for our our cultural heritage, our values, like we don't believe in putting up people as gods or as you know that we worship idols and you got you got sucked into it in my opinion yeah i mean look based upon your book you know um the cult of trump trump is a cult leader i've been saying that and i said it the house oversight committee yep. you know in front of basically the whole world and what this guy has the ability to do is to lead you down the path. It's like the yellow brick road until you finally find yourself in the middle of a dumpster fire or with your fucking hands behind your back with shackles on being remanded back to prison. Yep. You know, not once but not once but twice. And all for what? That's the whole that's the whole point. I knew that when he would have me do things. You know, He's very clever about how he does things. He doesn't come in and bombard you by dropping right. a pile of shit on top of your head. It's a slow, 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 methodical drip of wrong, of wrongdoing. You know, it's this, you know, this guy didn't really do the best job in terms of painting. Call him up and tell him we're not paying him. You know, that's wrong. The guy works for a living. He has a, a crew. They spent the money on the paint, the primer, all of the you know materials that's needed in order to paint. And he's going to stiff this poor bastard. Well, my job was to appease his ego, his narcissistic, sociopathic ego. Right. And ensure that if he told me, we're not paying this guy, it's my job to turn around and to tell that person, we are not paying you, do what you want. And one of the ways that, of course, I used to tell people that you can do whatever you want. You could sue, not sue. I have an unlimited expense account, right. which is, it wasn't really true. Right. But I have an unlimited expense account when it comes to defending litigation or starting litigation. So you do whatever you want. I guarantee we will outlast you in the litigation, right? You, whatever you think that you're going to get on this $35,000, deal, yep. you're going to spend five times the amount on legal fees, and generally they would go away. 
They would generally go, and then he would, again, drip, drip, drip of more shit coming down until ultimately he's having me pay $130,000 to a porn star who pulled this pecker, so, and I end up in prison. So, Michael, I want to take this opportunity, because this is the first time we're, we're talking, to share with you three very short summations of very important social psychology experiments and this is what I explain to all my clients that I help who are exiting cults, what I explain to all families who are trying to rescue someone. I talk about A, the Ash Conformity Study, B, the Milgram Obedience Study, and C, the Zimbardo Prison Study. Very quickly, the Ash Conformity Study is you get a group of people in a room, you tell them they're, you're going to have a visual perception experiment, you hold up a series of placards with a sample line and three lines of different sizes, and you go around the room asking everyone which is the correct match, right? You can see with your own eyes a two-inch line is a two-inch line, not a three or a four-inch line. But what the person doesn't know is everyone's in on the experiment except them. And the experiment is how many people will start to agree with the wrong answer if everybody's very convincing. And the answer, and this has been done thousands of times around the world, the number is two-thirds of people <laughs> start giving the wrong answer just to fit into the, to the peer group. That's the first thing I explain to people. We're hardwired to survive and adapt, okay? Second, Stanley Milgram was a, was a survivor of the Holocaust, came over, one of the premier social psychologists, he made a phony shock machine. And this is what I really want to share with you, Michael. He, a phony shock machine, he had a teacher and a, and, a, and a student, and you had to teach word pairs. And if the person got it wrong, you had to flip a switch. And on the machine, it said 15 volts, 30 volts, an incremental up to danger, danger, extreme, severe shock. And, the, the, and what Milgram was trying to know is how many people will electrocute a fellow human being if a, a guy in a white coat who says, you have no choice, you must continue, will do. And they had this, the tape recording of the guy screaming in pain, my heart's bothering me, get me out of here. There's a whole setup. It's a beautiful experiment, and there's an actual documentary called The Experimenter about Milgram. But two-thirds of everyone kill, symbolically, another human being in an hour because a stranger in an authority figure with a white coat tells them they have no other choice. One-third are heroic resistors who go with their conscience no, it sounds like pain in there. If you want me to give pain to another person, you do it. I'm leaving. Keep your 15 bucks or 25 bucks for the experiment. But it's very important because when I understood this experiment, my guilt level for being a cult leader in the Moonies went down a lot because I realized I was just following orders who I believed was a legitimate authority figure. 
Zimbardo, who, who was Stanford Emeritus professor, actually taught a course called the Psychology of Mind Control at Stanford for 15 years, using two chapters from Combating Cult Mind Control. He set up a mock prison in the basement of the psychology department, randomly chose guards and prisoners, and people were becoming sadistic, uh, guards, people were having nervous breakdowns, and a two-week experiment had to be called off in six days because people were flipping out. And then the social psychology world said, this was unethical. You can't do that on human beings. So then all kinds of internal review boards had to be set up to do these kinds of experiments. But I'm telling you, as someone who's been helping people out of cults for 45 years, Mind control cults are doing unethical experiments on human beings, trafficking them, uh, abusing them, uh, having people commit crimes. And the law needs to be updated and changed, period. We need to have clear criminalization of enslavement psychologically of other human beings, in my opinion. Yeah. Well, Stephen, let me ask you this then. How do you define a cult? And what is it about Trumpism that rises to the level of cultum? Because I saw even on your Twitter site, you show the insurrection on January 6th. And when I watched this happening on January 6th, all I kept thinking is these poor stupid bastards. They're doing, in essence, what I did. I did it with a pen and a checkbook, right? I did it with a telephone. But these people are doing Donald Trump's bidding. And it amazes me when I listen to all of these fools on television that want to come out and try to protect, like Mark Meadows, right? Try to protect yep. Donald from the reality, right. the reality that I wish to God people would put Visine in their eyes and clean out their ears and listen and see for yourself what's really going on with clear sight and with no wax in your ears. Yep, exactly. So I do want to... Uh, pat myself on the proverbial shoulder and say, when I wrote The Cult of Trump, I said in the last uh, chapter, if he's not reelected, expect violence. And then I quoted Jim Jones. And I didn't know about January 6th, but I said, he's not going to go away easily, folks. Be, be, a, be warned by history. The next thing I want to say is this this person, Stephen Hassan of Flushing, Queens, New York, who hated Richard Nixon, fought with my father over dinner because he voted for Nixon, fasted for three days on the Capitol steps in 1974 during Watergate because Moon said God wanted Nixon to be president. And yours truly, naively, I'm on the, 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 in the Capitol, I'm calling my father, thinking he's going to be so proud of me and so happy. And he's like, Steve, you were right. He's a crook. I'm like, Dad, you don't understand. God wants him to be president. He said, Steve, he's a crook. Now I know you're brainwashed. So when <laughs> I was watching January 6th, I already was on the Capitol 40 years earlier <laughs> for another because my cult leader told me to go. And Sean Moon, the son of Sun Myung Moon, the former cult leader uh, that I was in, was there with busloads of people saying it was Antifa. So I was very much going, I'm so glad my family deprogrammed me. I'm so, so lucky. So, Stephen, but, but 
Right, but let me ask you, so what is it about this Trumpism, this cult of Trump that rises to the level of cultum? Uh, so uh, forgive me for not answering your question. So Michael, I have something I call the influence continuum. It's on my freedomofmind.com website of ethical influence to unethical influence. And when you ask me what defines a cult, my answer is there are cults along the entire continuum. There are ethical, constructive cults, like I'm in a scuba diving cult, or I'm in the cult of Mac, or or uh, uh, cult, cult of TEDx. I've done two TEDx's, and now I'm going to do a third one. I'm very excited, right? But what my work is about is authoritarian cults. And I define it in terms of controlling people's behavior, information, thoughts, and feelings to create a new pseudo-identity that's dependent and obedient on the authority, authority figure or ideology that suppresses your authentic self, the self in you that has a conscience that goes, this is wrong, I should not do this. Well, the cult identity is programmed with phobias, with black and white, all or nothing thinking that mirrors the cult leader. And I was told explicitly, explicitly to be a small Sun Myung Moon. So I wanted to walk like him and talk like him and think like him and make him happy. He literally held me up to the membership as the model member at one point. And I was literally, if someone handed me a gun, I would have shot on command without hesitation or died on hesitation. That's how far I went. So how can people do something when all the facts are opposed to it? It's it's a speaks to the human mind. And next I'll blame uh, the digital world. Uh, that people are now, and especially in the pandemic, where people are extra anxious and worried and economic pressures, etc. People are super vulnerable. And unlike in the 70s, when I was in a cult, and I was recruiting people, I had to ask questions to find out what made somebody tick so I would know how to recruit them. But now you can buy information on the dark web about virtually anybody and find out what their hot buttons are. And it's a matter of just having the money and the will to say, I want to get Michael Cohen. Like, what are, where are his vulnerabilities? Where can, we, where can we motivate him to do incrementally what we want him to do so he gets deeper and deeper in the muck and he can't reality test? The good news is people wake up and they often get angry. Like, you got angry when you woke up. You're like, damn, I am pissed. And he's not going to get away with this. And I hope your lawsuits eventually proceed. So my lawsuits will proceed, um, and there's no doubt in my mind that the one against the U.S. government, Trump, Bill Barr, who we just served, Michael Carvajal, and a whole slew of others, it's, it's, a, it's a winning argument. It's a winning case. Mm -hmm. Not because I say so. Not because every single legal expert who's been moderating on television says so. Judge Alvin K. Hellerstein was so crystal clear when he said that it was retaliatory. But that case 
is not just about Michael Cohen. It's about our democracy. Yep. It's about our democracy in peril. And what happens when you have a narcissistic sociopath? You refer to them as a malignant narcissist. What happens when you have a malignant narcissist who weaponizes the Justice Department, including right Bill Barr, yep. right, who becomes complicit because he too is in the cult of Donald Trump. And like I, which is, mirrors what you said, right. was willing to take a bullet for the guy. Right, goes ahead and unconstitutionally remands somebody. Right. People need to understand this isn't just about Michael Cohen. This was a test run, folks, about how far Donald Trump can push the system before the system breaks on him. So the same way he tested the insurrection, which is the second way to overthrow a government, the first way and the important thing is you stifle people's First Amendment rights. Right. So just look at what Donald Trump did. He stifled or tried to stifle First Amendment rights, yep. and he created an insurrection with his MAGA army, with his paramilitary group. Those are the two key elements to overthrowing a government. Right. Uh, undoubtedly. So, I mean, there's so many things that I want to uh, say to you and your listeners um, that is so vital. People like Bandy Lee, a forensic psychiatrist who was at Yale, whose expertise was dangerousness, edited a book called The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump. New York Times bestselling book came out in the second edition. She was censored by the media. I've been censored in the media. Why? Because my thesis in the cult of Trump is that the membership, for the most part, are cult members already. They didn't just get bewitched by Trump. For example, there are 30 to 40 million Americans who are estimated involved with a network called New Apostolic Reformation. And the media has incorrectly called these white Christian evangelicals. Not in my world, in my universe, my Christian evangelical pastor friends are like, they're not teaching Jesus or the Bible. These are prosperity ministers who claim to be an apostle or a prophet and get direct revelation from God who supposedly speak in tongues and cast out demons. And they have control of behavior, information, thoughts, and emotions on their spiritual warrior followers. And if they get a revelation, God says Trump's going to win in 2020, and then Biden comes up with 7 million more votes, they either have to, according to the, the Torah, stone the prophet to death because he did a false prophecy, or say Biden stole the election. That's the mindset, that Satan is in the Democrats and everybody who isn't with the Trump orbit. This black and white, all or nothing, good versus evil mindset uh, but again, the, the so I talk about Opus Dei, which William Barr apparently is involved with. He was on the board yep. of directors in D.C. Mm -hmm. I talk about the family. Jeffrey Charlotte wrote two New York Times bestselling books, and he has a five-hour Netflix series on the family. Pence was recruited into the family by Chuck Colson, who was uh, under Nixon. This is a cult that does the National Prayer Breakfast for 50 years recruiting people. So the way I see it is we really, what's missing is an understanding about the differences between ethical and unethical influence. 
And in my world, unethical influence includes concepts like brainwashing, thought reform, coercive control, mind control. And uh, when people when people understand the model, uh, they start connecting the dots and they wake up. So, Dr. Stephen, are you saying to me that if you're in church and the pastor on the pulpit turns around and says, I see I see a lady in the in the 10th row with a three carat diamond ring. Come on, give it up to Jesus, sister. That's not good. <laughs> Jim Jones loved to do that. He loved to stick people in wheelchairs and then do faith healings, and they yeah. got up and danced. But it's fraud, as multi-level marketing are frauds. And we know Trump you know, did a vitamin thing and a university multi-level market. Yeah, we got, sued. We, we got sued on that one, too. But, Steve, let me ask you this. It's not you a we describe... anymore, Michael. I'm going to interrupt you. You're out of the cult. They. <laughs> That's right. We. It's a they. You're done. You're right about that one. Yep. You describe one of the essential traits of a cult leader, and I just use the word, to be a malignant narcissist. Now, we use these terms to describe Trump without necessarily understanding them. I actually understand it because I started doing a lot of research onto it. But if you would, describe from a clinical perspective the meaning of malignant narcissist and how that actually applies to Trump. Sure, my pleasure. So first, let me say that... um Malignant narcissism as a concept was first uh, described by Eric Fromm, who wrote some really important books like Escape from Freedom. It's not in the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association, just narcissism is. But I'm going to run down the qualities of narcissism and then what makes it malignant or sociopathic. Number one, grandiose self-centered behavior. Number two, fantasies of power, success, and attractiveness. Number three, need for praise and admiration. Number Wait, four, oh, let me stop you for one second. Sure. Oh, keep going. Number four. Number four, sense of entitlement. And the most important probably is lack of empathy, the inability to step into another person's shoes and feel for them. Okay. okay. So, and, so and, and narcissism one. is on a continuum, Michael. So not everyone is 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 a, a terrible person if they have narcissistic qualities, but <laughs> the lack of empathy is huge. And then if I can just go through the the sociopathic stuff is number one, antisocial behavior such as thinking you're above the law. Next is lying, pathological lying, uh, interpersonally exploitative sadistic, harassing and silencing, violent or, or threatening violence, paranoid, and then inability to trust friends and subordinates. How's that? And I just wanted to say that every single one of those attributes that you just listed off and enumerated all describe perfectly Donald J. Trump. A hundred percent. So I did chapter three, comparing Trump from his own words and behaviors with my former cult leader, Moon, Hubbard of Scientology, and Jim Jones. So I give direct parallels. They all were malignant narcissists. And if I was going to say to your listeners, if there's one thing you want to know about to protect yourself and your children and your loved ones, teach them about malignant narcissists. 
because if you understand, you know, if the bells go off in your head when you're introduced to someone who's effusively praising you, oh, Michael, you, you're so great. I can't do a good imitation like you can of DT. But my, Michael, you can do this. You're the greatest, whatever. When you start hearing it, you go, wait a minute, warning, warning, danger, danger. I don't want to be involved. I don't want to marry this person. I don't want to get into business with this person. Let me find healthy people. Now, Stephen, you previously described your experience in the Unification Church as similar to the spell of Trumpism and cults like QAnon, right? In fact, during your time as a disciple, that you, I mean, you just stated you believe that Nixon was an archangel, went to pray at the Capitol to protest his removal from office. When you were watching January 6th, the attack on the Capitol, did you think to yourself at any point during that, this could have been me? Oh, 100%. This would have been me? That's because it. I know that's what I was saying to myself. I was like, holy shit, if three years ago, if all of this fucking bullshit never happened to me, that this in, in indictments against me with Stormy Daniels and all of the other made-up nonsense, like the tax evasion and so on, which never happened, right. but you have no choice when they're breathing right. down your neck and threatening your wife, right? Yeah. I was saying to myself, holy shit, if I was still involved with this lunatic, would I have been there too, along with Don Jr., along with Eric and Laura Trump, along with Rudy Colludi Giuliani yep. and the rest of the bunch of wackadoodles? Yeah, no, I, I absolutely thought that. And I thanked my parents, even though they've passed, for making the effort to deprogram me after I nearly died in a near-fatal van crash due to sleep exhaustion. But I can tell you, I've had this experience again and again and again over decades. One of the shock, most shocking things was looking at the dead bodies of parents with their arms around their children that they gave cyanide-laced Kool-Aid, Flavor-Aid to, in the jungles of Guyana, because Jim Jones, who claimed to be the Messiah, uh, told them to. And when I saw that, I had never heard of the People's Temple before that tragedy, but I was like, I could have done that. And then Heaven's Gate and the Order of the Solar Temple and the Om Shinrikyo cult in Japan where they did the sarin gassing of 5,000 Japanese people. I, I w because I was a true believer, Michael. I, I wanted to save the world and give my, my all to, to help others and to build a Garden of Eden on Earth. It was that fantasy and people in, who are still in the cult orbit of Trump, they have this fantasy that's been put in their head of, of make America great again. It has nothing to do with reality or historical you know, facts about the history of America, that our founders wanted a separation of church and state. We wanted, you know, we wanted to uh, uh, have, have uh, human rights and rule of law and not just follow a king. Well, you know, Trump wants to go back and be king because he had a terrible childhood. He had an authoritarian father. He was raised in a cult of Norman Vincent Peale where he was taught to do thought stopping and, and that if you believe something 100%, it will magically come true. And so people say, oh, he's a Teflon person. Nothing gets them. It's because he's taught, been taught to thought stop and block thoughts and feelings.
his whole life. Yeah. Well, we're gonna we're gonna get to that with um Vin- with Norman Vincent Peale, but I do want to say that I'm contemplating on putting out a new hat. It's um instead of it being MAGA, it's gonna be the MMPFA hat, which is make my pockets full again hat, and start sending it to all of the Trump these toadies and these fools that are parting with their money to the you know to the Fuhrer himself. But I'm I'm Stephen. I'm quite interested in this whole concept of this cult in how the cult of Trump is actually composed of other authoritarian cults. If you would, because I know you talk about this in your book. Can you describe what they are and who's in them? Yeah, so uh, I started with Putin at the top because my research indicated a long-term thing with uh, Russia and allegiance to him. Uh, potentially, uh, it's not the critical thing for me at the moment. I talked about the family of Mike Pence and a lot of people who are brought into the cabinet or involved with that particular cult. I named Opus Dei, New Apostolic Reformation. But I talk about uh, the Jewish right, the, ext- the extremists who uh, are authoritarian, who who want uh, Israel. Uh, I, I love Israel. I've been to Israel several times. My first wife was an Israeli-American. But there are so many uh, emigres from Russia who still listen to RT daily and are still being fed with, with uh, Russian propaganda that is, was supporting Netanyahu and, and, and this whole, what I think is a, a very unjust uh, uh, relationship. Anyway, going on white supremacists, white power, are also in have a cult and are what's called fellow travelers in the spy business. You recruit different people who have different agendas, but if you can get them to collude for you know to back somebody with money and power, I have to mention Coke, the Coke industry, the the, the ultra libertarians, people in the cult of Ayn Rand who think that selfishness is a, a virtue instead of taking care of others, which is what the Abrahamic traditions all teach, is we should take care of strangers and immigrants and people who are poor and hungry and starving. Um, well, Donald takes care of immigrants. He actually marries them. Right? <laughs> but only if they do are porno stars. I'm sorry, that's a low blow. I apologize. Um, the important, the important thing is, if to me, is not focusing on name calling and uh, making people feel attacked who is still linked to the cult of Trump, but really encouraging them to step back and do some reality testing. Like, go back in your mind to your first memory of Donald Trump. And a lot of people had very bad memories because I've asked a ton of people. They thought he was an asshole. They thought he was an egotist. They thought he was a misogynist, et cetera, et cetera. So then I asked, yeah, buffoon. I asked them to step, step by step, tell me how you started to change your mind and actually think of him in a positive way. And just that question, if you ask it respectfully, and you're patient and you're a good listener, you're actually empowering people to connect with who they were before they got into the cult and then to try to identify details. Another important thing that I want to share with your listeners is if you attack Trump, 
the cult or the policies head on, it makes believers believe more. It makes them feel persecuted and makes them dig in. Whereas if you do an incremental approach, ethical but incremental, where you talk about other cults that they agree are bad, like trafficking and pimps or Chinese communist brainwashing techniques, they'll listen. And then you get to explain the actual mechanisms and criteria for evaluating. And with the help of people like yourself who knew Trump, worked with him intimately, and there are many other people who've been uh, involved with Trump who have gone public too, but you're number one. Mary Trump is, you know, parallel because she was a relative. But they it's the former members who I think have the power to say, hey, listen, we need a redo here. We need to redo a reset on values. Like, and get out of this war against, you know, the Illuminati and QAnon and the space aliens and the green reptiles. And like, let's come back to reality because we're on this one spaceship Earth and we're in a lot of trouble and we got to take care of each other and start thinking not party affiliation, not political affiliate. We have to think about human rights and, and trying to save democracy itself. Yeah. Well, if you would. Can you describe your BITE model, B-I-T-E model, and how my listeners can potentially use that to assess if their own friends or their loved ones have fallen down this rabbit hole of cult-like devotion to either Trump or the MAGA cause? Yeah. Can you explain that? My pleasure. So what I want to say is that I stand on the shoulders of of giants, of, of former military intelligence in the 50s who were studying brainwashing in the first place. So I, I learned their models. And as I was trying to figure out how was it done to me, I realized that it was a lot more sophisticated what happened to me than what was being done in China in the 50s. And I was searching for a way to describe it in a way that people could relate immediately. And I took uh, Leon Festinger's work called Cognitive Dissonance Theory. He actually wrote a book in the 50s called When Prophecies Fail about a UFO cult. And he and his students went to study them. What would happen if the, when the spaceship didn't show up on the appointed day? And what he was shocked at at the time was they believed more when the spaceship didn't come because the leader said, because of your faithfulness, the aliens decided to spare the earth, even though they had sold their houses, left their wives and children in certain cases. Anyway, I took his cognitive dissonance theory model of thoughts, feelings, and behaviors, and I'm like, let me resort mind control by looking at behavior control, thought control, and emotional control. And I'm like, wow, controlling sleep, controlling diet, control, you know, needing to ask permission, rewards and punishments. So I started generating a list and there was something really important missing. And it took me a while to realize information control was the missing piece, because in order to trick somebody, you have to deceive them at first. Like I was deceived by the women who were recruiting me into the Moonies because I thought they were interested in me. And they said they weren't part of a religious group. So I was lied to. In any case, I started thinking about information control, how in the cult, you're not allowed to talk to ex-members. You're not allowed to read negative literature. 
you have to spy and turn in anyone else that's starting to doubt or question. So I just started laundry listing my own experience. And then as I talked to ex-members from other cults like Scientology, the Way International, etc., I started fleshing out this whole thing. And in my first edition of Combating, uh, it wasn't called the Bite Model. I just had the four components. And then it was a Christian evangelical friend who said, you know, if you change the order, you can make a handy dandy thing that people can remember more easily and call it bite. So the bite model was, was, was born. But the critical thing is you need the influence continuum to apply the bite model, because the more authoritarian it is, you know, it's going to have more control of people's information, thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. How do you get out of a mind control cult? There's several steps. If I have uh, a couple of minutes, I'll just say, A, take a time out from whatever you're doing. Like get away from the group, get away from the person, like turn off your cell phone and the media for at least a week. Like let your brain become like normal again, walk in the woods, play with your yeah, that's dogs. That's the only way I was able to get out. Get away. Sure. And I, cause I had an accident. I was in the hospital for two weeks away from the cult. That's what I needed to just get to start coming back to myself. But then you want to study brainwashing models. And I recommend Lifton and Margaret Singer and my bite model. But then the critical thing is seek out critics and former members, because if you're in a mind control cult, you're taught to dismiss them. They're all liars and not trustworthy. So, but if, if you take the position, look, I want to know for myself, am I under mind control? What do I have to fear by talking to Michael Cohen or Mary Trump and hearing why they think Trump is dangerous or is a cult leader, right? But then the next step is you have to honestly reflect, and I was mentioning this earlier with you, you have to go back in time before you got involved and say, were any of the BITE elements present in my experience? And you start ticking them off. And then you get to a point where you can then evaluate. Oh, then the last question is, if I knew then what I know now, would I have ever gotten involved in the first place? Exactly. Exactly. If the answer is now, no, I, wanna... I never would have gotten involved. Time to make a move from whatever Time you're to into. Time to make a move is right. Yep. Yep. You know, it's funny because I heard that that UFO cult, that one of the, when it didn't show up at its appointed uh, spot, one of the people turned around and said, well, that's because, you know, the spaceship didn't have ways and it got lost somewhere a little <laughs> bit left to the moon and took a wrong turn. Right. But I don't worry. They'll, but don't worry. They'll be back. But I, I would like for you, Steve, if you would, sure. can you describe your strategic interactive approach and how it's useful for deprogramming Trump cultists? Sure. So I only had one chapter in the Simon & Schuster book, The Cult of Trump. So I tried to condense it. But really, there's a lot more that people should learn about before they attempt to help a loved one. But it really comes down to love is stronger than mind control. And having a respectful series of interactions, especially if it's a family member or friend, and say, look, I respect you. I love you. You know, you've changed, but maybe I'm too judgmental. Maybe I'm, I'm leaping 
explain to me because if it, if what you're believing is true, then I need to believe it too. Let's make a deal. You share some of the things that were really important to you, how you got to where you are in your beliefs now. We'll watch it together. We'll discuss it. Then I'll have a turn and I'll share a video and we'll discuss it and we'll go back and forth because what matters most is you're my friend or you're my brother or you're my uncle and, and blood should be thicker than water. And I want to separate my ego from my beliefs because I just want to know what's true and what's real. So what I've evolved over 45 years is getting family members and friends together as a team, educating them so they can read my books. I have a podcast now, The Influence Continuum. I think we're on the same platform, actually. Midas, Touch, Go, Mycelis Brothers, I believe. In any case, uh, I, I put out... Uh, videos, a course, so people can learn how to interact. The number one technique is ask a good question respectfully, be quiet, and wait for an answer. And then when they give an answer, follow up. That's, that's what really works. Now, if you're going to ask me, how do we help 70 million people, Steve? The clock is ticking. What do we do? I say everyone who has a family member or friend who's still in the, the cult of Trump should at the very least reach out to them and say, I miss you. How are you? Yeah, you know, it seems a lot um, simpler than what it really is. As I talk about in my book, Disloyal, one of the very early chapters uh, when I talk about my wife, um, neither my wife, my, son, my daughter, or my son wanted me to work for Trump. And... The more I would come home and I would talk about some of the things that I would do, thinking that these were spectacular. Boy, did we just fuck this guy today, right? Something fierce. My wife would look at me and she goes, and that's good. Why? My daughter would say, that's disgusting. What about him and his family? My son would just shake his head at me with like a look of disapproval. And I'd be like, I don't think you guys understand Oh, I in said fact, those it was words. I, of course. Who I said didn't? The, you don't understand, mom and dad, to my parents. So sorry. Right, and then it got to a point mm-hmm. where we started fighting, and then the only way that we, you know, kept the family intact and as strong as it was, I won't talk about what I do at work, and you won't judge me for what I do. Right, at which point in time, my life inside my home was very different than my life outside the front door of my building or the second I got into the Trump Tower. You know, it was, I was two completely different individuals, you know, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, you know, as just a, you know, as an example. And that was the, that was the only thing that really kept us from, you know, from fighting because again, my wife, my daughter, my son, they couldn't stand him. It was like, you know, this lying, nasty buffoon who, you know, behaves like such a, like such a mongrel, right? right? This racist, sexist, misogynistic, xenophobic, homophobic, Islamophobic, anti-Semite. None of those are my qualities. None of them have ever been my traits. And yet 
I got fucking sucked down this rabbit hole into his bullshit. You know, I don't know if it was maybe I got mesmerized by staring at the you cotton were, candy you on were top mind of his controlled, head, buddy. In my opinion, my professional opinion, you were mind controlled. You were just describing Jekyll and Hyde. I talk about the dual identity: Steve Hassan, son of Milton and Estelle Hassan, and then Steve Hassan, the son of of Sun Myung Moon and Hak Chahan, the true parents of the universe. But, you know, your family was doing the best they could, but they didn't understand cult mind control. And if they did, they would have understood how to engage your conscience, the real you, and make you reevaluate what's happening. But they did the best they could because they probably just couldn't stand it anymore, which is why most Americans have cut off contact with their loved ones, even if they were really close. Um, because it's so toxic to be around someone who's so radicalized, but the the answer. But Stephen, I was only. But Stephen, I was only radicalized the second I left. Or this, I should say, the second I arrived at Trump Tower, because you even had when the identity, I, Michael. You, it was programmed into you. Had a dissociative disorder, in my professional opinion, because this. While I was here in my home or outside of the Trump Tower, you know, more than 100 people sent letters in to Judge Pauly, you know, attesting to who they know me as. The guy sure. who at three o'clock in the morning, if you break down on the LIE, I'm often running to get you. You know, I'm the one that if your child needed something, right, right um, I'm the guy who was getting it you know, for them. I was always the one helping out everybody else, whether I knew you for 40 years or for 40 minutes. I had literally a hundred people stating this. I and believe I was you. A, I'm, I've always been a giving person. But the second I got into Trump Tower, I was just a taker. And I didn't benefit from the take. That's the funny part. Everything was done but you're at the direction of and for the benefit of Donald J. Trump. You're describing yourself as a cult member. Because of what yeah, you the weren't. only thing I just didn't do so is the, I just didn't pay a dues. So the, <laughs> I paid bigger dues than you could imagine. Right. The, the, the thing is, is that a lot of people misjudge folks who get into mind control cults. In social psychology, it's called the fundamental attribution error. I know it's a big, a lot of syllables. But it means that human beings have this bias when they're trying to understand other human beings to overestimate the person's disposition or personality and underestimate the context and the social psychological forces on them. The truth is, is we're human and therefore we're information dependent and uh, we get it, we adapt and, and such. I want to mention that my mentor, Robert J. Lifton, uh, who was one of the first to study brainwashing, did a, did a book called The Nazi Doctors, Michael. And he wanted to answer the question, how can a, doctor, a medical doctor sworn to heal and help people, you know, be good family men, be, you know, loving husbands and great dads, and then go to the death camps and do the most horrendous activities? Lifton called it doubling. It's the same concept of dual identities where your real self is being squished under this good Nazi identity or good Mooney identity or, or Trump identity.
You know, Stephen, I want to say something because you brought up uh, Norman Vincent Peale before and you kind of made a statement that Trump was raised in the church of, um, you know, Norman Vincent Peale. um, And you described, of course, as a quasi cult like, um, you know, leader of the church and so on. I want to be very clear to you. I want to be clear to all of my listeners and, you know, um, the new listeners, the old listeners, etc. Right. Donald Trump was not raised in the church of Norman Vincent Peale. They may have been members of that church, but he never went to church. Donald Trump has no religious identity. You know, I know he shows this one picture of his, um, you know, uh, what is it? His um, um, marriage. Indoctrinate. What's that? What Didn't, didn't Peale marry him or his daughter or somebody? No, uh, no, 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 no. Oh. Um, it, he he has um, a photo that he puts up there when he was like 12 years old, right? Um, and I can assure you that was the first and last time that he was ever in that church. And he did it because uh, he get the photo and he could make the claims that, you know, that he did what he was supposed to do. I guess his mother, you know, who was more religious uh, even than the father probably required it. And then after that, he never went. Donald lied even about that, mm-hmm. right? I mean, the if you ask me, you know, my rabbis, I have photos with them from when I was born, when they did my circumcision, all the way to the same guy married me, yep. right? So I can show you hundreds of photos of us together. This is the one photo, not with Norman, Vincent, yep. Norman, uh, Norman Vincent Peale, but rather just a picture of him with a whole group of other people that we ended up just taking the photo, expanding it, and then that's supposed to show that he's a religious character. And he needed that so he could bullshit the, evang- the evangelists that I brought to the company, that I brought under the diversity coalition with all of that and created the, the, the pastors for Trump, etc. This was all part of another big lie. You see, that's the whole thing, and I say it all the time. Donald Trump lies the way you breathe. <laughs> I, I agree with that, and I, I defer to your expertise about his childhood, but I do take the position that while he may not have been a churchgoer, he absorbed the law of positive attraction, which was the ideology of Peel. If you believe it 100%, it's going to magically appear, which is how I believe all the, the prosperity televangelist cult members who eventually came to support him, he was able to link with them on that, to just... Just trust God 100% and God's will will be done automatically. I could be wrong, so let, let but me, that's my yeah, take. Yeah, so let me let me just t- tell you, the the way that he bullshitted the evangelists, like I'm still very close. I even spoke to him yesterday, both Jerry and Becky Falwell. I speak to them all the time. They've been friends of mine now for a long, long time. And I can tell you how he ended up bullshitting them. I am, I'm the one that asked them to go to Iowa and to help him out. I uh-huh. write again in my book. I did it because I didn't want him to be embarrassed. Mm-hmm. He was getting his ass kicked there. And Jerry Falwell Jr. is a well-known individual, and that was going to give him some credibility. Franklin Graham said no at the time. So I, you know, I had asked Jerry, who's a friend of mine, again for a long, long time. The reason the, the evangelical community backed Trump is because he made the claim to them that he would be against um, that he would be against abortion, and that's all they cared about. So he used them, and they used him for 
the for abortion as well as for getting certain judges, you know, more conservative judges, the judges onto the bench. Yep. Short of that, they don't believe a goddamn thing that that Donald says. They don't believe any of the bullshit that he's spewing. They're using him and he's using them. In the FBI world, they would call him a useful idiot. But I just want to move on for a second <laughs> sure. and ask you this. Have you been approached by families seeking to free their loved ones from the MAGA cult? And if so, what, what's your approach towards saving them? I know mine. Mine went to going to prison and watching my family's unhappiness. Hmm. But have you been approached by anybody? I, I've done uh, a, a Reddit Ask Me Anything for QAnon casualties for hours and hours. A lot of people read my books and such, but it's um, remarkable. Very few people have approached me to hire me and actually you know, are willing to commit to the time uh, that it takes. It's a project to undo uh, years of indoctrination. It works. Um, so that's the, the quick answer. However, I do think not only empowering people to reach out to the loved ones, I think the Biden administration, the January 6th committee, uh, and others could be doing things from the top down to educate people about brainwashing and mind control, not just talking against disinformation and propaganda, but actually teaching and, and, you know, the methodologies that are employed here. Um, because we're in a, we're, I, I think of mind control as a virus, Michael. It's a, it's a virus of the mind. And so it is. Well, Dr. Stephen, let me say this. You know, as I said to you at the very beginning, the hour goes by quickly. So I have one last question for you. And I want to change gears for this moment because you write quite a bit about the danger of cryptocurrency. How does the rise of cryptocurrency connect with the larger rise of global right-wing authoritarianism? Because you recently retweeted the following, and I'm going to quote it. The rise of cryptocurrencies and the attacks on democracy are a single phenomenon. They are both attempts to advance a libertarian, individualist worldview. Of the Austrian school economists, Hans Hermann Hoppe, may be the most relevant right now. Would you do me a favor? Because I'm an investor in cryptocurrency, not a lot. You know, I play with it with my, with my children. Would you please unpack for me and my listeners what he's saying and why that they should be wary? So I want to do a shout out to Dave Troy, who um, is the curator for TEDx Mid-Atlantic and sponsored the Dismantling QAnon TEDx that I was a part of. And it's really his been his research on this connecting the dots with Peter Thiel uh, and, and, and others who believe in undercutting the government of the United States to create a new virtual reality that's beyond uh, countries. And when I first heard about cryptocurrency, my MLM, multi-level marketing uh, neurons went firing off because I've been helping people out of groups like Amway and other multi-level marketing cults for decades now, where people believe in a fantasy that they're going to make millions and who wind up making money are the t beginning people who start the MLM. People buy in and then they cash out and everybody loses money. And my understanding is unless it's regulated by the government of the United States, it's going to be used as a force to divert 
uh, much-needed resources to help pave roads, pay for salaries, and to get our, keep our country uh, moving. So I'm not an expert on crypto, but I, all everything that I understand is if it's unregulated, it serves the interests of criminals and, and, and Putin and other dictators to move large amounts of money uh, where, where authorities can't know about it. Yeah, well, um, I can only tell you that my kids are still doing well in it, so... I happen. I, I for for us, for us, it's it's small, and we're just having a fun time trying to you know to play and to be a part of this. So you know, I would this encourage you. I would encourage you to check out Dave Troy. He writes on Medium. Uh, he's really smart, and but he he doesn't just say things. He really reads books and is a very thoughtful person. And um, I have a nephew who's into crypto, and I had a very frank conversation because I love him. And he said, don't worry about me, Steve. And I'm like, okay, but I'm here. And But in right. the meantime, talk to my friend Dave and at least hear why he's so skeptical about how you're going to make millions with crypto. I sure, I sure will. And Dr. Steve, let me say thank you for joining me on Mea Culpa. Truly appreciate it. Um, fantastic conversation. Wishing you all the best. Yeah, and please give yourself a break going forward and stop calling yourself bad names and go to your your wife and your kids. I'm sure you've done this, but do it again. Just look them in the eyes and say, I wish I could go back in time to when you were telling me to stop and I wish I had listened to you. Forgive me. I promise in the future, no matter what, if you ever see me getting involved with something you have a problem with, I'm going to be open-eared and take it seriously. That'll make them feel better too, I think. Yep. Thank, thank you. My pleasure. Thanks so much, Steve. Thanks for having me on. And now for today's mea culpa. In speaking to Stephen Hassan, I'm reminded of just how easy it was to fall under the sway of Donald Trump. For over a decade, there was nothing I would not do for this man. At one point, I would have even died for him. In bragging about how I was willing to take a bullet for Trump, I was in fact showing the world how completely I had lost my own sense of self and had become such a slavish devotee of the Donald. But that is how cults work. Those who worship the leader do so at any cost, displaying blind faith and an unwillingness to look at any inconvenient facts. If you have a family member or friend who has disappeared down the rabbit hole of Trumpism, don't despair. For even the most brainwashed soul, there remains a way back to sanity. MAGA fanatics can still be deprogrammed in the same way that Hassan has treated disciples of Scientology and Sung Young Moon. But ultimately, Trumpism will reveal itself to be a con to his followers in the same way that Trump University crumbled to the ground. For Trump has no love for the people he leads. He fucking despises them. They are but a means to an end. His foot soldiers are brown shirts enabling him to cling to power. If he could do so without them, he would do it in a second. Think for a moment back to January 6th and how appalled Trump was at the rioters, not for their violence, but for how they were dressed. Nevertheless, we are at a crossroads as a nation between freedom and authoritarianism. Never in recent history has the choice been so black and white. 
I keep waiting for the fever to break and for those who worship Donald to realize him to be the emperor with no clothes. The idea that he could once again be president has to be fucking terrifying. So let's hope the spell breaks before the next election. And thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. And it's written and produced by Jimmy Jelinek. Executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, myself, Michael Cohen, and Phil Alberstadt. Our editor is Lisa Orkin. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is winning the war on the state and local level. Mea culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Mea culpa, nothing but the truth.